Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Hey friends, this is Elisa Childers uh, filling in for Frank today as he is wrapping up his footsteps of Paul Cruz. I'm sure that he will tell you all about that when he gets back, but I'm thrilled to be with you today. We're gonna talk about an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. In fact, it's the focus of my ministry. And that is discussing the movement of progressive Christianity from a biblical and frankly, from a logical point of view. Maybe you've noticed in your social media circles, in certain Christian books and blogs that you've read, or even at your church, uh, some things that have concerned you. Maybe you've heard some things that gave you some red flags, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is or maybe what to call it or how to articulate what you're, what you're thinking, but, but you have these concerns. Maybe it's an overemphasis on the humanity of the Bible. Maybe you've heard someone call the Bible just a human book. Maybe there are self-professing Christians in your life who no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God. Maybe they, they believe it's a great book and, and something we can learn a lot from, but they wouldn't go so far as to say that all of it is the word of God. Maybe you've heard a sermon in which a pastor says that Jesus didn't really die to atone for our sins, but that he was just simply murdered by an angry mob and that somehow he submitted to that, but, but that was never really God's will. Uh, because if it was, that would make God something more like an abusive father. Maybe you've read a Christian blog or a book that re-examines essential doctrines, cardinal Christian doctrines like the virgin birth and the physical resurrection of Jesus. And, and maybe this book or blog concluded that these things don't really have to be real. They don't have to be actual historical events for Christianity to be true and to be meaningful in your life and in the world. All of these red flags, all of these are signs of a movement called progressive Christianity. I'm sure you've noticed, as I've noticed, that professing Christians are divided on a lot of issues. Uh, we're seeing self-professed Christians change their views on things like abortion and gay marriage and how to define and carry out justice or social justice more specifically. So these are differences of opinion that we as Christians find uh, among atheists or agnostics, right? We would expect an atheist or an unbeliever to, to disagree with us on things like abortion and, and gay marriage, because that's where our culture's at, right? If you don't affirm gay marriage, you can be labeled a bigot or you can be la labeled a hater. If you don't fight for reproductive rights, which is really just another way of saying abortion rights, then you are actually an oppressive force to women or you're contributing to an oppressive system. This is what we hear in culture. The, these are ideas that we find bubbling up all around us. But what some Christians don't realize is that 
the movement of progressive Christianity is not just a shift on social issues. It's not just a group of concerned Christians who have awakened to the task of fighting for the oppressed or, or maybe trying to become more inclusive. Although those things definitely tend to be a part of it, they're really just symptomatic of a deeper issue. And that's that the progressive Christian gospel is an entirely different gospel. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today, the progressive Christian gospel. So the first thing we need to do if we're gonna talk about progressive Christianity is we need to define it. Now, Frank and I have talked about this and he does not like the term progressive Christian. And I can completely understand why. He, he prefers the phrase liberal Christianity. And frankly, you could use those terms interchangeably. And I think uh, Frank's complaint is that to use the word progressive, it implies that progress is, you know, it's something positive. Progress is generally considered a good thing. It's, it's a movement toward something better. And as Christians, we do want to be progressive in a certain sense. We want to progress in our faith. We want to progress and mature and grow in our understanding of God and his word. We want to grow in holiness and sanctification. But there's a difference between us progressing in our understanding of the eternal truths of God and those truths themselves, and even in some cases, in some people's belief, God himself progressing. So a progressive understanding of Christianity would be to say that Christianity itself is progressing, not necessarily the individual Christian. Progressive Christianity would say that we can look back on our spiritual ancestors and we can learn from them what they believed about God at the times and places that they lived. But ultimately, we are now coming to a higher and wiser view of God, as progressive thought leader Brian McLaren puts it. And when they're talking about spiritual ancestors, they're not just talking about C.S. Lewis. They're not talking about A.W. Tozer or Spurgeon or Augustine or Aquinas. When, when they're talking about looking back at our spiritual ancestors, they're talking about the biblical writers themselves. They're talking about Moses. They're talking about Paul and Peter and the apostles. These are our spiritual ancestors in their view who just understood a certain amount about God, but we can understand and know more now. And that's what they mean by progressive. And it's a, it's a movement that is quite organized and has very specific views on different biblical points. And the two things I think that are at the center of that progressive understanding of Christianity is the Bible and the atonement. So how a person thinks about those two things, well, in my opinion, define whether or not they would be in the camp of progressive Christianity. So all, uh, or at least most of the most prominent voices in progressive Christianity, all of the, the thought leaders have a very specific view of the Bible and the cross. And today we're going to kind of dive into both of those pools. We're going to talk about the progressive view of the Bible and how that differs from the historic view of the Bible. And we're going to talk about the progressive view of the cross and how that differs from the historic view of the cross. And it might be relevant here to give you a bit of my backstory to, to help you understand why I even really care about this topic. 
Um, so I want to tell you how I became aware of this movement. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in church. In fact, as far back as I can remember, we were at church pretty much any time the doors were open, Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings. And honestly, as far back as I can remember, I have loved Jesus and I've loved the Bible. Uh, as early as I could read and write, I studied the Bible and did my best to live my life according to God's word. I did not always do that perfectly. And I wasn't raised in a perfect situation either, but I was given the authentic gospel. My parents were real Christians. I regularly saw them reading their Bibles and praying. We would pray together as a family and study the Bible as a family. And, and on top of that, it was really important to my parents that we were involved in a street ministry and homeless ministry. So my mom would take us down to Skid Row where we would work the soup lines at the Fred Jordan mission there. And so I was regularly exposed to poverty and to uh, just the harder side of life. And I watched my parents love on drug dealers and prostitutes. And I watched the power of the gospel change lives. I watched the gospel change the lives of prostitutes and drug dealers and drug addicts. So I can't look back on that and say that I had a blind faith. My faith was not blind. My faith was informed by a lot of things, but what I didn't know at the time was that my faith was intellectually untested. And this is something I would not discover until I was already an adult, married, with a brand new baby. My faith would be intellectually tested and it sent me into a crisis of faith. And it was through that crisis of faith that I discovered apologetics and I discovered the intellectual side of Christianity. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that when we come back. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Alisa Childers here, filling in for Frank Turk today. If you're just joining us, we're talking about progressive Christianity. Maybe you've heard the term emergent or liberal Christianity, and those terms can kind of be used interchangeably, but progressive Christianity is an organized movement that sees Christianity itself as progressing beyond the revelation we've been given. It sees all of the people who've come before us, including the biblical writers, uh, especially the biblical writers, not as authoritative mouthpieces for God, but simply as people who were just trying to figure God out and were just doing the best they could with the knowledge that they had at the time in which they lived and their, their place in history and their place in the world. So they see Christianity as evolving into a higher and wiser view of God as time goes on. This is why in progressive Christianity, it's perfectly okay to disagree with the Bible. And this is something that really shook me when I first became aware uh, of this movement. So before the break, I started to tell my story of how I became aware of this movement. So as I mentioned, I grew up in church. I always loved the Bible, believed it was the word of God. I believed it was without error and I could live my life by it. But if I'm honest, I didn't know why I believed that. 
I didn't have reasons for why I believed the Bible was the word of God. If somebody were to have asked me, I would have probably just said, well, I, I just have faith. Or I might have said, the Holy Spirit has shown me this in my heart. Uh, so growing up, anytime I heard a skeptical claim about Christianity, my answer was something like the Bible says, and then I would give my answer. And that, that really settled it for me. And it wasn't until I was in my early to mid thirties that I had a fairly significant faith crisis. And it all started with what I believed about the Bible. So several years ago, many years ago, feels like a lifetime ago, I was a part of the uh, contemporary Christian music recording group, Zoe Girl. Some of you may remember Zoe Girl from back in the early 2000s. We traveled all over the country and even other countries singing and performing. And during that time, I was exposed to a lot of different denominations, a lot of different streams of in fact, we played in almost any kind of church you could think of. And so as a person who is constantly exposed to church and Christians and Christianity, I began to see some things I was questioning. I was, I was questioning the way we were doing altar calls. Uh, I was questioning the way that I really felt like I had to have it all together, just the pressure to be kind of this perfect Christian example and not feeling allowed to struggle with anything or, or have any doubts or, or things like that. And so when Zoe Girl was coming to an end, we were all married and starting to have kids. And I found myself kind of isolated. I, I was a new mom. And so during that time, I was invited to do some music at a local non-denominational church here in Middle Tennessee. And my husband and I just fell in love with the church. We loved the sense of community we found there. We loved the, the pastor's sermons, which were really kind of intellectual. We had never really been exposed to that, and we loved it. And so in the context of attending this church, after about eight months, I was invited by the pastor to be a part of an inner circle type study group. And it was presented as something that would be along the lines of what you would learn in seminary. It was a four-year class. And it was said that if you, if you went through this four-year class, you would come out on the other side, knowing what you would know if you had gone to seminary. And so this excited me. This sounded really interesting to me because that intellectual side of my faith had never really been, uh, that, that muscle had never really been worked out. And so I went to the class and it was in the context of this class that, that the pastor of this non-denominational Christian evangelical church admitted to the class that he was actually an agnostic. And so what proceeded to happen in the class is that every doctrine I had ever believed, everything I'd ever believed about Jesus, everything I'd ever believed about God, and, and especially the Bible, was put under a skeptical lens and really put under attack and picked apart. And in progressive Christianity, there's there's a word called deconstruction. It's a bit of a rite of passage. Many of you listening know people who have gone through a process of deconstruction. And what that means is that every belief that a Christian might have be begins to be examined in a way that it gets unraveled, almost down to nothing. And in some cases in progressive Christianity, it will become completely unraveled. In fact, many progressive Christians in their process of deconstruction will go through uh, a temporary phase of atheism. Some 
stay in atheism and don't reconstruct any kind of meaningful faith. But for some, they'll go through a temporary phase of atheism and then reconstruct a different Christianity than they had before. And often this type of Christianity doesn't really resemble the, the Christianity they had before. It doesn't resemble historic Christianity. And often it's, it's a rejection of whatever kind of world, Christian world that particular person grew up in. And so what I realized looking back on the class is that the class was really this pastor's deconstruction. And, and he was processing this with a small group of people, but it really shook my faith. It sent me into uh, a, a dark time of doubt that I can only describe as being kind of like tossed into a stormy ocean with no lifeboat, with no, no help or rescue coming. Because, see, I, like I mentioned before, I had always loved and believed the Bible. The Bible says it, that settled it for me. But when someone was able to, in a way, knock the legs out from under the Bible, I didn't know where to find truth. I didn't know how to stand or, or how to figure out what was true because there were skeptical arguments brought against the reliability of the Bible. There were skeptical arguments brought against the authorship of the Bible. Uh, and, and so there was such an attack on the Bible that it, it really left me reeling. And so the progressive view of the Bible is that it's a wonderful book. Progressives will tell you the Bible is a great work of literature. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book, but they will emphasize that it's a human book. They'll, you'll hear phrases like, there's a lot of wisdom in there. We maybe even can discover a bit of God's word here and there, but you generally won't find progressive leaders who will affirm that the Bible is without error that it's cohesive as a whole, that, that the entire Bible is, is giving you essentially the same message. And you won't find many, if any, progressive leaders saying that the entire Bible is God's word. And so often progressive Christians will say that they have an even higher view of scripture because they claim to read it in the way that it was meant to be read. Uh, they might even say that it's divinely inspired uh, but often what they mean by divinely inspired is very different than what Christians have historically meant by divinely inspired. They may mean it more that it's inspired on the level of a great Christian writer of the past, but not that it's in every sense, every word is God breathed. And here's an example. I want to give you a few examples as we, as we go along. So Brian McLaren is a progressive Christian thought leader, and he wrote a book a while back, I think it's about 10 years ago, and it's called A New Kind of Christianity. And when he talks about his view of the Bible, he says this, this is a quote from the book. He says, human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And that scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in scripture 
like fossils in layers of sediment. So what McLaren is saying here and what I have found consistently across the board in progressive Christian books is that the Bible is more like a snapshot. So we can look back and take a picture of what Paul believed about the Bible. We can go back and and take a snapshot at what Moses thought about God when he wrote the Pentateuch. But these are not authoritative voices that are speaking for God, but they're more like fossils. We can pick that fossil up, we can dust it off, we can analyze what they believed about God at that time, but it's not in any meaningful sense an authoritative word from God. So if this is, just thinking logically, if this is someone's view of scripture, uh, which I have found to be very consistent in that movement, if this is someone's view of the Bible, it's going to affect how they interpret the Bible. And one example of this is there's a Lutheran minister named Nadia Boltz Weber, and she's just written a book called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. And in this book, she's recommending that the historic view of sexuality that Christians have always held uh, needs to just, she says it needs to be burned to the ground. We need to start over this whole idea that people need to wait until they get married to have sex or that marriage can only be between one man and one woman. Uh, th- this all just needs to go away. We need an entirely new uh, sexual ethic. And that's what she argues for in her book. And, and one of the ways she argues this is to talk about her view of the Bible. And so In the book, she describes one of her parishioners who is a lesbian, who took the six passages that have to do with homosexuality out of her Bible, tore them out and threw them into the fire. And then she tore out the four gospels, clutched them to her heart, and then threw the rest of the Bible into the fire. And in approval of that, Nadia Boltz Weber was was approving of that and She says this in her book. She says, there are those who will say that it is dangerous to think we can decide for ourselves what is sacred in the Bible and what is not. I reject this idea and here's why. Her why is that she goes on to describe her view of biblical authority, the the level of authority the Bible has in our lives. And she describes her view as this, that the gospels, the four gospels are the most authoritative books. But the further you get from that story, the less authoritative the Bible is. And so in in Boltz-Weber's view, basically you can choose which parts of the Bible are authoritative and which parts are not. You can choose which parts to listen to, which parts to obey, and you can choose which parts don't really resonate with you, which parts don't really feel right or that they don't work for you. And so this is a very consistent view of the Bible progressives have. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the progressive view of the Bible, and we're going to talk about their view of the cross. We'll be right back. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations 
go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Lisa Childers here, uh, filling in, hosting for Frank Turek today. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a movement called Progressive Christianity. It's a growing movement that's very influential in the church. Many people don't realize that the ideas of progressive Christianity are creeping in everywhere. Uh, We just talked about the progressive view of the Bible being one that sort of picks and chooses which parts of the Bible are sacred, which verses are authoritative, and which ones aren't. And honestly, it can be intimidating when we hear some of these ideas, especially when they are marketed as Christian. It can be confusing. And if there are any Christian parents listening today, particularly moms, I'm a, I'm a mom and we can feel a bit overwhelmed when we realize that our kids are having to encounter all of these ideas in the culture that they live in. And especially with the information age we're living in, where they have every opinion and every worldview right at their fingertips. And so I want to tell you about a new book that's coming out on June 4th. It's called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And we've all heard of the the whole mama bear paradigm. There's almost nothing more fierce, more terrifying, more strong than a mama bear protecting one of her cubs from an outside threat. Uh, but but we often think of the whole mama bear paradigm being applied only to a physical threat, right? We've heard stories of moms actually lifting cars off of one of their kids or, or some just great feats of strength. But there are philosophical threats. There are logical threats, cultural threats, atheistic threats. There are progressive threats that all of our kids are facing as well. And they're they're growing up in a culture where all of those ideas are just right there at their fingertips. And so we as moms need to be mama bears when it comes to the ideas that our kids are interacting with. And so this is the theme of the new book, uh, again, coming out on June 4th. Hilary Ferrer of Mama Bear Apologetics has put together a phenomenal team of contributors who are all well-studied in apologetics and philosophy. And so we've written chapters on cultural issues like Marxism, self-helpism, skepticism, emotionalism. I contributed two chapters to the book. One is on progressive Christianity, and one is on something called new spirituality, which is really just good old-fashioned new age, but with a modern makeover. So here's the thing about the book. Hillary, our general editor, is really smart, and she's witty, and she's funny. So all of us who contributed followed her lead and wrote our chapters in a way that just feels like two moms sitting down for coffee, laughing, and talking. And so Mother's Day is May 12th, I believe. It should be, uh, I think that's next weekend. The book doesn't come out till June 4th, but you can actually pre-order it today on Amazon. So if you have mothers in your life uh, who have young kids or even up to teens, a great idea would be to order the book and maybe just slip a note in the card that you've ordered it for them, letting them know it'll be here early June, maybe stick a gift card in there for some coffee. I really think that moms are going to get a lot out of this book. Uh, it's not just for moms, though. It's really for anyone 
who wants to know more about these cultural hot topics. So again, that's called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. Pre-order that on uh, Amazon today. Now, speaking of cultural lies, we've been talking today about progressive Christianity. We talked about the progressive view of the Bible. We're going to talk about the progressive view of the cross. When people hear the phrase progressive Christianity, they might associate that with Christians who might just be more progressive politically, maybe, or, or who might be changing their minds on gay marriage or abortion, as we mentioned earlier. But, but make no mistake, the progressive gospel is an entirely different gospel. And at the heart of progressive Christianity is a denial of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, we spend some time talking about the Bible because a lot of this centers around the Bible, right? If you can, if you can put the Bible to the side, if you can get rid of ideas like biblical authority, if you can get rid of inerrancy, if you can kind of get rid of the idea that the Bible really matters, then you can just make up rules however you want them to be. And you can define Christianity really any way that you want to. And so uh, that, that Bible is sort of the first peg of progressive Christianity that gets knocked down. And then substitutionary atonement is the second one. So historically, Christians have believed that Jesus died for our sins, that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. And that if we put our trust in Jesus, then his blood cleanses us from our sins. These are historic views of, of the atonement of what happened on the cross. Certainly a lot more than that happened on the cross. Uh, there are all kinds of different language and metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what happened on the cross. But the, the primary focus for Paul, the primary focus of the New Testament is that Jesus died to cleanse us for our sins, that he's Israel's Messiah. He's the Messiah that, that they waited for, that they talked about in Isaiah 53, the one who would take the sins of the world upon himself and die in our place. And in fact, Jesus himself affirmed that that prophecy was about him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. And so the idea that Jesus didn't really die for our sins, of course, has been around for a long time. But it crept into the evangelical mainstream, I think, largely through the book, The Shack. Now, this was a wildly popular book. And in the book, the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross is a bit unclear. Of course, it's written like a novel. So it's a story, not necessarily a theological treatise, but theology informs the story. And so what was made clear in the book is that his death accomplished reconciliation for everyone in the world, not just those who believe in him. So there were seeds of universalism in there. Uh, and, and I think it was confusing for a lot of Christians because maybe this was their first exposure to some of these ideas. Uh, the theology, though, that the author William Paul Young was wrapping in story in the shack, he wrote about more clearly in his book, Lies We Believe About God. Now, this book came out a few years later and was more of a theological book than a novel. And in that book, he teaches that sin doesn't separate us from God and that we aren't really fallen. And that's another theme that's really big in progressive Christianity. The reason they don't believe that Jesus 
had to die in our place and pay the price for our sins is because we're not really sinful by nature. They generally reject the doctrine of original sin. They reject the idea that we inherited a sin nature from Adam. And so in the book, Lies We Believe About God, William Paul Young says that maybe we're blind, but we're not depraved. And then he taught that if the cross was God's idea, if this was God's will, then he's nothing more than a cosmic abuser. And this, some iteration of that phrase, cosmic abuser, is a very popular phrase in progressive Christianity, the whole idea of cosmic child abuse. Uh, But of course, Paul tells us that the cross is an offense to unbelievers. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so for progressive Christians who would identify themselves that way, they don't see Jesus dying on the cross as something beautiful. But as uh, Michael Gunger, who's a, a Christian artist, he's been very outspoken about this. He wrote on Twitter that the idea uh, of this, of this substitutionary atonement is not beautiful, but it's horrific. And so many progressive Christian leaders teach that the idea of blood sacrifice of of Jesus making atonement for our sin is not something that that is true. It's not something that God thought of, but it's just something early Christians borrowed from pagan culture. It's something they got wrong. And and so in in a sense, the idea goes that they were just imitating the polytheistic Uh, the gods are angry mentality from the culture in which they were living. This is something Rob Bell teaches. This is something that I have found, again, consistently across the board among progressive Christians. And if if you only heard those constantly repeated talking points, you would think that the idea of Jesus dying for our sins in our place as substitute is something that the earliest Christians had no concept of. You'd think that it's something that was invented in the Middle Ages. But if you read for yourself the New Testament, if you read the church fathers, you get a very different picture. You see that the idea of Jesus as substitute is all over the place. Now, of course, there were times in church history when that wasn't maybe the dominant focus of atonement theology. And it certainly wasn't primary for every church father, but it's there. It's present all throughout the church fathers. And and the earliest place we see the seeds of this is in what's arguably the earliest creed in Christian history. And that's 1 Corinthians uh, 15. So Paul is recording a creed in 1 Corinthians 15 that was circulating among Christians as early as three to seven years after Jesus's resurrection. In fact, some scholars, even some really liberal scholars put it even earlier than that. And so Paul records this creed. Of course, 1 Corinthians was written um, years after that, but he was recording an earlier creed that had been passed on to him. And so the creed says this, it says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then Paul goes on to record over 500 eyewitnesses seeing Jesus alive after his death. And then he he ends by recording his own encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And so this creed says that this is the most important thing. He says, I delivered to you as of first 
important. So we may disagree on some tertiary issues here, but Paul is saying this is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And, and it says in accordance with the scriptures in this creed twice. So it's very clear that the earliest Christians did believe that Jesus had died in their place for their sins. This was all deeply connected with the scriptures and that he was physically raised from the dead and that there were eyewitnesses that saw him alive. So there's evidence to show that these things are true. We see this all over uh, early Christian writings. The epistle of Barnabas is an early writing. It's not really agreed upon who wrote it, but it represents early Christian thought. And here's what the epistle of, of Barnabas says, for to this end, the Lord endured to deliver up his flesh to corruption, that we might be sanctified through the remission of sins, which is effected by his blood of sprinkling. And then he goes on to relate that with Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus making the sacrifice for our sins. And as we mentioned before, Jesus himself affirms that prophecy is about him. We'll be right back. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Alisa Childers here, stepping in for Frank Turk today. We're talking about progressive Christianity. And a bit earlier in the broadcast, I shared the story of a crisis of faith that I went through when my beliefs were challenged in a church by an agnostic pastor. And having been someone who was raised in the church, I had never really experienced any kind of significant doubt about Christianity until this point in my life when I was uh, already an adult, already a mom. And uh, so in, in the, the challenges that I, that I encountered in a class that I was in through this agnostic pastor, there were skeptical arguments challenging the historicity of the biblical narratives, claims against the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. And it just left me feel like I was drowning and I prayed that God would send me a lifeboat. I knew there had to be somebody out there who was aware of these claims, who had access to the same information, the same facts, but had come to a different conclusion than the agnostic pastor had. And, and I wanted to find that person and then compare the claims and see what I believed was true. And so one day I was driving in my car and I heard a man on the radio answering all these objections. And he was calm and charitable and kind, but he was offering a very different perspective than I had heard from this agnostic pastor in this class. And I learned that this man was Ravi Zacharias. And so it's through Ravi's ministry that I discovered things like cross-examined. I discovered the Southern Evangelical Seminaries uh, Conference app. That, that's a thing. That's an app that exists. You can download and hear the lectures from their conference. And so I downloaded their app. And one of the first lectures I listened to was called Science Doesn't Say Anything, Scientists Do. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. And it was Mr. Frank Turek. And so Frank 
and cross-examined was one of those lifeboats that God sent to me to help rebuild my faith. And, and through their ministry, through SES and Ravi and others, God began to rebuild uh, my faith. And I learned that for every skeptical claim against historic Christianity, there's a really good answer if someone is just willing to do the work. If, if you're willing to think it through, to push, to study, be diligent, research. And honestly, this is what we're all called to do. So after a few years of studying and studying and studying, I was satisfied in my own faith. I was satisfied that the historic claims of Christianity were true. I was satisfied that the Bible is God's word that's been transmitted reliably and, and that what is written is true. And so at that point, after several years of that study, I wondered what I would do next, if I would just move on or go back to doing music. And, and then I heard about CIA. This is the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. It's a three-day, fairly intensive training focused on how to best present apologetics to your sphere of influence. So the year I went, uh, the instructors were all apologists who had in some way helped me when I was in a crisis of faith. These were all the lifeboats that God had sent to me when I was drowning in doubt. So it was Frank Turek, it was Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell, uh, Greg Kokel, Brett Kunkel. And so I decided to go. I decided to see if this was something that God had for my life, if apologetics was going to be a part of my ministry. And so when you go to CIA, for any of you listening, if you've been there, it's intimidating because you actually have to make an apologetics presentation to the instructors. And so on the second or third day, you break up into smaller groups with one instructor per group and you give your presentation and you get feedback. And sometimes uh, the instructor will even debate with you a little bit to make sure you know what you're talking about. And so at the end of my first CIA, both Jay Werner Wallace and Frank encouraged me to pursue apologetics. And so that's when I started my blog, which is alisachilders.com, A-L-I-S-A-C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S.com. Currently, right now, I'm writing a book that's going to be coming out uh, on Tyndale House. It's just crazy. If you would have asked me in 2016, if I thought I would even start a blog, I would have told you you were crazy but I did. And it became very clear that this is the path that God has set me on. So all of the struggles, all of the crisis of faith was divinely orchestrated for my life. And I'm thankful. And I'm thankful for CIA because it's not an exaggeration to say that it really changed my life. I don't throw that phrase around lightly. Well, guess what? CIA is coming up again this summer. It's going to be August 8 through 10. I'm actually joining the instructor team this year, so I will be there. I want to encourage you to go to crossexamined.org, click on the events tab, pray about coming to CIA. You, you get one-on-one -on -one training. We eat meals together, attend great talks, how to implement what you're learning, how to make your social media better. There is so much great practical information. And uh, this year, it's going to be Frank Turek, Brett Kunkel, Greg Kokel, David Woods joining this year. I'm joining this year, Bobby Conway and some others. I'd love to see you there. It is not cheap, but it is a really worthwhile investment. It may be that you that you already have an online apologetics ministry or an apologetics ministry or your church, or maybe you want to start one. This is something you want to check out. So go to crossexamined.org and pray about applying.
it was really life-changing for me, and I pray it would be for you, and I'd love to see you there. Well, we've spent some time today talking about what progressive Christians don't affirm, right? We've talked about their view of the Bible, that it's it's more of a human book that we can look at like a fossil. We can see what the biblical writers believed about God in their times and in their places in history, but they weren't really authoritative mouthpieces for God. Uh, we've talked about their view of the cross, that Jesus didn't die to pay the penalty for our sin, but was really just crucified by an angry mob because he spoke truth to power and He's an example maybe for us to follow. So we've talked about what progressive Christians don't affirm, but what do they affirm? What is the progressive Christian gospel? Because everyone needs a cause, right? Everybody has to have something they're working toward. And so the whole gospel paradigm of Jesus dying to cleanse us from our sins, us being saved by grace through faith, a belief in a literal resurrection of Jesus, a belief in having eternal life in heaven with God is all something that progressive thought leader Brian McLaren calls the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. And again, this is something I find consistently across the board with progressive Christian thought leaders. So he and other progressive Christians claim that this is just simply a philosophy that early Christians borrowed from pagan thinkers. McLaren argues for what he deems to be a more Jewish view of the Bible. He says that the true gospel can be found by reading the Jesus story through what he calls a Jewish lens. And so what he means by that is that Jesus's gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel that Christians have historically understood it to be. It's not about who's in or out, according to McLaren. It's not about who goes to heaven or hell when they die, but it's more about confronting systems of oppression in the here, in the now, and, and ushering in God's dream for creation. He, he explains in his book that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion, but he came to announce a new kingdom that is much bigger than a new religion. In fact, it has room for many religious traditions within it. And this really gets to the heart of the progressive Christian gospel. The progressive Christian gospel is really focused on a very secular definition of social justice. Christians have always done good works in the world. We've confronted oppression, impacted our societies for good. Christians have always had a strong emphasis on helping the poor and the orphans and the widows. Not that we've always done that perfectly throughout history, but the historic understanding of the gospel sees these good works as a sign that our faith is alive and not dead. But it doesn't throw things like sin, atonement, and heaven and hell out the window in exchange for just building a better home here on earth. And so the progressive gospel generally is focused on building a better home here, confronting systems of oppression, uh, ecological renewal. It, it focuses even on green energy and uh, healthy, sustainable, regenerative economies. Not, not that any of that is bad things. We want a good economy. We want, uh, we want to take care of the earth that God created, but that isn't the gospel. 
Good works flow out of our faith in Christ. And so largely in progressive Christianity, there's a denial of any sense of like an individual person's salvation. But but we can expect this, right? The Bible warns us that this is going to happen. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he explained that God was using him and others to, as he put it, to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. But he went on to say that not everybody found that smell to be so sweet. Some of them thought that it smelled like a dead person, like a rotting corpse. But this is this is what the real gospel does, right? It confronts our personal sin. It, it, it confronts the sin that we cling to, the sin that we love, sin that deserves death. Because even if we work together to build a better society, we're still going to be sinful inside without repentance and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. So only when we can grasp how treacherous our sin is, can we recognize how beautiful the cross is, how beautiful the gift of God's grace is. And, and this is why a bloodless gospel is really not good news for anyone. So Paul said that to some, the message was the fragrance of life and to others, the stench of death. There's really no middle ground. So as Christians, we need to decide. We need to decide where we stand because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It has been so great to be with you today. I want to thank Frank for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him while he's out. If you're listening, I'd love to connect with you on Twitter. It's Twitter at Alisa Childers, Facebook slash Alisa Childers blog. Thanks so much for listening today. Have a great day. you got a lot of value out of this episode if you think our podcast needs to reach more people here's what you can do to help go to itunes and type cross-examined official podcast four words in the search bar and leave us a five-star rating it'll take you less than five seconds and if you have a few more seconds to spare leave us a positive review the best reviews will be featured on future episodes you can also listen on spotify stitcher and google play god bless